0: Stay hungry, stay foolish.
1: Oliver Sacks is arguably one of the best scientific writers of our time. Oliver Sacks said, Our guest today is arguably one of the best scientific writers of our time. He has so many letters after his name, I don't know what to call him, so I'm just going to call him Man. He's a neuroendocrinologist, a professor of biology, neurology, and neurological science, a multiple best selling author, and a fantastic lecturer and human being, and he is here with us today to share his brilliant book. We welcome author of behave the biology of humans at our best, and at our worst, Robert Sapolsky. Welcome to the show.
0: Well, thank you for having me.
1: You always start with the fantasy. And you've overcome him. You've overcome the guard, and you have this moment. I'd love if you'd start by sharing this with us.
0: The day I captured Adolf Hitler. And it was fantasy. I'm leading a team of crack commandos and we, we overpower his elite guard or, you know, it's a fantasy. I single-handedly overpower his elite guard. I burst into his bunker. He has a pistol. I knock it out of his hand. We grapple. I get him down. I put handcuffs on him and I get to say, Adolf Hitler, I arrest you for crimes against humanity. And it's at that point that, one then has to ask so what would you do if you had had hitler or more pointedly what would i have done and if i let myself go there and really allow the viscera to come bubbling up sever his spine at the neck take out his eyes cut his tongue out when i would have that fantasy or if i were to have it now my heart would speed up and I'd breathe faster, and I'd be responding physiologically. All these plans for this most evil soul, most deserving of punishment. And then what I come up with is a problem, because I don't believe in souls, and I don't believe in evil, and I don't believe that punishment makes sense for biology, and none of that makes sense to me. But at the same time, you know, there's all sorts of people I would like to have killed, But at the same time, I'm strictly against the death penalty here in the United States. But there's all sorts of violent, schlocky movies that I love to watch. But at the same time, I'm for very strict gun control. And I'm confused. I'm confused like virtually every other human out there when it comes to this issue of violence. And sort of the starting off point of what I think about is this enormous challenge we have in that we're the most miserably violent species on this planet. And that about it. Like cancer, bad thing, get rid of it. Miserably violent, bad thing, get rid of it. But the confusion is that we don't hate violence. We just hate the wrong kind of violence. And when it's the right kind, we love it. And we hand out medals oh and God. we vote for these people. Even the bigger problem is that while we're the most miserably violent species there is out there, we're also the most altruistic and compassionate and cooperative. And the huge challenge for making sense of us and our behavior as biological organisms is how do we make sense of these extremes? And how do we make sense of the fact that the exact same behavior, you know, you flex your index finger and you pull a trigger and in one setting that's the most appalling thing imaginable and in another setting it could be a moment of like suicidal heroism or something and the challenge we have in making sense of the biology of our behavior is not explaining the behavior itself it's to understand the context and that's really complicated once it gets to us humans
1: you use that as the starting point and then the way i always think about this is it's like you' there's a zoom in moment of that behavior, and then you zoom back and you go, "Well, what happened milliseconds beforehand? What happened days beforehand? what happened weeks beforehand? What happened generations beforehand and that is the beauty of how you constructed this because there is so much information in this book. I was telling you beforehand that I'd read a chapter I'd read a page and go, "That's a chapter in another book, <laughs> and there's eight hundred pages, but it's so brilliantly the narrative structure is fantastic. But there's so much in it that you're going to have to keep manners on me to to get through the narrative of that today. But but let's start perhaps with what is happening the moment before you pull the trigger.
0: What you have is all sorts of brain regions that are terribly pertinent. Uh, area at the top of the list is called the amygdala. As you mentioned, amygdala is about fear. It's about anxiety. And really importantly, it's about aggression. You can't make sense of the neurobiology of violence outside the context of the neurobiology of fear. And you know, basically in a world in which no amygdaloid neuron, you'd be afraid, there'd be a hell of a lot less violence. So that part's easy. What then becomes more complicated is an area of the brain. I love this region. Um, it's called the insular cortex. And 99% of beasts out there, it's totally boring what it does. You take a lab rat and it bites into a piece of like raw fetid food and within like a fraction of a second this insular cortex activates and that triggers all this reflexive stuff the rat spits out the food it gags it like winces and you get like some crazy college student volunteer and stick them in a brain scanner and have them bite into some rotten festering food and their insular cortex will activate in a tenth of a second and will trigger gagging maybe even throwing up what does the insular cortex do? Um, it mediates gustatory disgust. It keeps us from eating toxic food and getting poisoned. But then you do something more interesting with humans, which is you stick them in the brain scanner and don't make them eat something disgusting. Just make them think about eating something disgusting, like, I don't know, some squirming locust or something. And we humans will activate the insular cortex just thinking about it but then you take it one step further and stick that human in a brain scanner and don't have him eat something disgusting or think about eating something disgusting make them think about something morally appalling a picture of a victim of a lynching people who have been subjected to genocidal ethnic cleansing whatever such thing and your insular cortex will activate And about 40, 50,000 years ago, when we invented moral transgressions, the notion of that, obviously, like you couldn't invent a new part of the brain in that period. And the brain evolved to just wing it at that point to improvise. Ah, insular cortex, disgusting food, disgusting morals. Yeah, have it do both of those. (laughs) And that's why if something is disturbing enough to us, if something is morally appalling enough, we feel sick to our stomachs, we feel queasy, we're left with a bad taste in our mouth. And what is remarkable is when something morally disgusts us, the first part of the brain that the insulin talks to is the amygdala. And the really dangerous thing is that some of the time, what is morally disgusting is like some horrendously damaging heartless act. Some of the time it's somebody whose behavior is just different than yours. Maybe they look different, maybe they pray different, maybe they love differently, maybe they whatever. And if you've got a brain set up so that different equals disgusting, and disgusting equals wrong, 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 you're running your ethics system on a very primitive part of the brain.
1: So let's stay on that. You've, you've sent me everywhere in my own brain here, all, all the neurons are firing, but let's stay on the 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 inputs that we're so unaware of, because you tell this brilliantly where, for example, we've, a, we've a high olfactory sense, even though we're not a very olfactory being anymore, but we still have the traits of that from back in the day, back in the cave days. But also, like, for example, you say, when when eyes flash up on a screen, or somebody of a different race, or even to the point about uh, our gustatory taste, if I drink some cod liver oil, for example, before i meeting somebody else, my meeting's not going to go so well. And
0: if they make some sort of moral transgression, you are now likely to advocate a more severe punishment for them than you would do if you didn't have a bad taste in your mouth. Wait, wait, that's just a metaphor for your insular cortex. That isn't a metaphor. A neuron there can't tell the difference between disgusting food and disgusting you know, situational ethics or whatever. Um, The one that you alluded to just now was probably like my favorite, oh my God, we really are just biological organisms. That one of take somebody, sit them down, give them a whole questionnaire about their political views, social politics, economic, geopolitical, whatever. And it turns out that if somebody is sitting in a room with uh, some foul smelling garbage in there, They don't even have to be consciously aware of it. If you're smelling something disgusting, people on the average become more socially conservative. It does nothing to your economic views, your geopolitical views. You're more likely now than otherwise to decide them with their different behaviors and different mores and different cultural values or whatever. When they do that, that's just kind of. I can't quite tell you why, but it's just wrong. It's kind of disgusting. (laughs) In fact, it's morally disgusting. You can sit there and be totally unaware of a smell in the room, and it makes you less likely to find somebody who's different from you to be acceptable just because they're different. And conversely, a more recent study, if you sit somebody in a room and there's the smell of freshly baked cookies in there, they become more generous in their economic gameplay. And again, without any conscious awareness. Wow. Why were you so much more generous to this individual than that one? Well, I think economically the logic of the world and our like laissez faire, you know, Adam Smith capitalist system. With it. No, it's because you were smelling like chocolate chip cookies and you weren't even aware of it. And Events happening 30 seconds before you make a decision that you're not even aware of is influencing who we are and what we do.
1: I was just thinking of politicians who may listen to this, they're out. Oh, oh, the chocolate chip cookie, (laughs) indeed, yes, before they go kissing some babies. But, but one of the things we talk a lot about on the show is unconscious bias and. It is so unconscious, like we—it's so baked into our systems that we're we're inherently racist in so many ways. And you tell us about when a face flashes on a screen, for example, our amygdala lights up.
0: This is, um, at least on first pass, the most damn depressing finding in this entire field. Once again, you get volunteers, stick them in a brain scanner, and you're flashing up a face every few seconds or even subliminally in a fraction of a second. And what you see is uh, really depressingly, this is with American subjects, American white subjects, about 70% of them, when you flash up the face of an individual whose skin is black, the amygdala activates. The amygdala activates in 60 to 80 thousandths of a second, milliseconds. And you sit there and you say, oh my God, that is the most like demoralizing thing. A 10th of a second, this could be a picture that is flashed up so quickly, you're not even consciously certain what you looked at, but your amygdala knows. And a part of your brain called the fusiform, which registers faces, it doesn't activate as much when it's a face of a them. Their face doesn't count as much. You don't remember it as accurately. There's another part of the brain called the anterior cingulate, which has something to do with empathy. Show somebody a film clip of like somebody's hand being poked with a needle. And at the moment the needle enters, your anterior cingulate's gonna activate. But if that hand has a different skin color from yours, on the average, you don't get as much activation. It depends whose face, whose pain. They're not all equal. So that's unbelievably depressing, except you see a little bit of good news lurking in there. The first thing is like this, like good like scientists crossing my T's, dotting my eyes when I say on the average, you get activation of the amygdala. On the average, not everyone. Who are the exceptions? Who in the United States, for example, are whites who you would put in a brain scanner and flash up a black face and the amygdala doesn't activate. People who grew up in a racially diverse neighborhood. People who had a close, intimate relationship with somebody of another race at some point or other. People who, in other words, don't use skin color as the criterion for who counts as an us or a them. So that's good news.
1: With regards the us's and them's, I'll come back to that, and particular, particularly oxytocin and because everything's oxytocin this great wonderful neurochemical i'll co- i'll come back to that but i'd love to share just one more thing because we talked about the cookies we talked about the unconscious unconscious inputs that we have coming in all the time one of the most fascinating fascinating and most relevant ones that we all can take action on was if i'm sitting in a comfortable chair or a rigid chair but also the the findings of the judges and the blood sugar, that is just incredible.
0: An extraordinary finding that should be one of the first steps in convincing everybody that the criminal justice system makes no sense whatsoever for a million reasons, but this one is intensely flashy. Uh, This was a paper published some years ago in a very prestigious journal by a very good group, and there were lots of statistical challenges afterward, and the results have stood up to all of these. What they did was they examined a whole bunch of judges um, who did parole board hearings, and I think it was it was actually a group in Israel looking at all the parole board judges and all of their decisions over the course of a year. And it was more than a thousand decisions as to whether someone would be released from jail or sent back for more time. And they looked for every possible predictor as to when judges would grant somebody parole and when they would send them back to jail. And it turned out the single best predictor was the number of hours it had been since the judge had eaten a meal. Appear before a judge right after they had a meal, 60% chance of being paroled. By four hours later, 0% chance. And you look at that and you say, oh my God, what's that about? That's biology. Blood sugar levels, low blood sugar levels, your brain doesn't work as well. And When the levels are low, the most expensive part of your brain in particular doesn't work well, and that's a brain region called the frontal cortex, um, which I hadn't mentioned before, but it's amazing. It's the most newly evolved part of our brain. We've got more of it than any other species. What does the frontal cortex do? It makes you do the hard thing when that's the right thing to do impulse control, gratification, postponement, long-term planning, emotional regulation. And where is this becoming relevant with judges when you don't have a frontal cortex working very well? The easiest thing to say in your low blood sugar state is rotten person. I look at all the things they did totally. I can't let them back out in the street. And what a more active frontal cortex is good at, is stopping you in your tracks and say wait what's the world look like from their perspective what things did they experience that i could never have dreamt of in my privileged life and so on perspective taking takes a lot of frontal activity and it turns out that when you're hungry it doesn't work very well when people are hungry they become less generous in economic games they cheat more they have less empathy. They have less activation of empathic parts of their brain when they're looking at somebody else's suffering. And judges find it a lot harder to do anything other than say, "Ah, throw them back in channel and throw away the key." <laughs> I,
1: I'm just thinking to myself, I've really set myself up here for a bad. I see you sitting on a wooden chair. It's 11:30. <laughs> it's 11:30 in California, PM. You probably just haven't eaten. I'm gonna order you a pizza, man <laughs> okay, okay.
0: that's good though I, I have a I have a cushion underneath my rear end,
1: so <laughs> I'm gonna call out to your wife, bake some cookies in the background <laughs> please, please um but but moving on so i I just wanted to share one thing to our audience about the amygdala and the prefrontal cortex because you do this brilliantly, and I was one of those nerds that when you say at this stage if you don't know much about the brain jump to the appendix and then the appendix was like another book <laughs> which with no I mean that in absolute uh thanks to you because it was and it was so brilliantly done but I love the way you talked about it's like the way I I uh, the mental model I created of it is is like the prefrontal cortex is this executive functioning it's like the CEO of you and then all the the, the limbic systems all like fighting for attention going me 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 and it's like uh it's like s- students in your class trying to answer the, the 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 question they're like i know the answer mr sibolsky me me and you're like going okay you but then some people can bypass it and get to you without you answering them or saying yeah i'll take your question well one of the most
0: sort of interesting bits of revisionism out there is okay you look at the frontal cortex it's gleaming it's brand new it's wonderful it's, it does all this fancy executive function stuff and then you look at the amygdala which just makes you do stupid things like punch someone when you're tempted even though you know better or just disinhibited stuff like that and what anatomists mostly learned at the start was, The frontal cortex sends a whole bunch of cables down to the amygdala and they're inhibitory. In other words, what the frontal cortex does is it races down to the amygdala as fast as possible before the amygdala does something god-awful stupid, and the frontal cortex gets there and says, I wouldn't do that if I were you. I know it seems like a good idea right now. You're going to regret it. It's like what frontal cortical amygdaloid interactions consist of would be the frontal cortex showing up down to the amygdala and like preaching christian temperance or something like that okay so this very one directional picture of the brain but then it turns out the amygdala sends as many projections up to the frontal cortex as the other way around and under circumstances of stress anxiety distraction fatigue pain hunger etc the balance gets flipped and the amygdala gets to dominate the frontal cortex instead of the other way around. What have we just explained, this is the whole world of every single one of us who during a time of great stress and agitation decided to do something that was horrendous and we regretted it for decades afterward. And it seemed brilliant at the time. This is where impulsivity comes from. And you look at half of like criminal murder trials. And this is something I've sort of made a hobby by now of like, testifying and teaching juries about the brain, where you have a moment where somebody in like extreme arousal, who's been threatened, and things have gone badly for him in the past. And he's just pulled the trigger. And the person is lying there, like on the floor, no threat whatsoever. And if you just stopped at that point, Any jury would have said that was self-defense because the other guy pulled the gun first. And instead, this guy, with six seconds of agitated non-reflection, instead decides to pull out a knife and stab the dead guy 72 additional times. (laughs) At which point, the jury says, you know, you should have been able to stop during those six seconds and say, hey... He's kind of inert on the floor there. I don't think he actually represents a threat anymore. You should have been able to discern that this was no longer a threatening circumstance. No, nobody thinks that then because nobody thinks then because their amygdala has taken over their frontal cortex entirely. And an astonishing number of these, I just do one trial after another, another, where some poor bastard who's had everything gone wrong in his life. So he's got the flimsiest frontal cortex you can imagine because it's atrophied by stress. And he's sitting there in a circumstance where, uh uh-oh, this seems just like that other time that wound up being really bad for how things finished for me. And I'm having all those alarms go off and I've just stabbed the guy once or pulled the trigger once. And any sane, calm, like legal scholar sitting there in their armchair would look at the situa- and situation and say, my, I think all of the threat has passed and it's time for you to shift gears dramatically and like get your frontal cortex back in charge. And instead, 99% of people Will wind up if they have that sort of history and that sort of brain scarred by lifetime of adversity is instead going to have their frontal cortex totally marinating in the amygdaloid juices, and they're going to pull the trigger every time. And before you know it, they're going to have pulled the trigger twenty more times.
1: Bringing that then to the office or the workplace or the home place for most of us, which is the workplace now. One of the things I thought about this was you, you say that the prefrontal cortex is the the basis of willpower, etc. But, but, but it's actually very expensive on the juice. So it takes a lot of juice to keep that running. And, you know, I'm very aware of, you know, the time here for you because uh, your willpower juice is going to start running out. I say this to my kids. I told you they're 10 and 8. And I say when they start misbehaving after like 7 or 8 p.m., it's I show them a glass of water and I pour it out and I go, I'm running out of juice. <laughs> and, and I thought this is the same because we run out of willpower throughout the day. And I think, you know, the way I construct my day is to is to organize it around prefrontal cortex activity, essentially, because I go to the gym in the morning, because I know if I, I won't go after work, I try and do my writing early in the morning, because I won't do it later in the day. I'd love your your opinion on this
0: it makes perfect sense. And one of the best sort of manifestations of this is one out of neurology, rather than sort of behavioral sciences. You look at people with Alzheimer's disease where it's relatively early stage, and you get something that's called a sundowner syndrome, which is you get that person early in the day and they can tell you where they are. And they've got a fairly good sense of, they know what year it is. probably know what month it is. They you know, have a good chance of remembering the name of the president of their country. They know the name of their spouse. They know the names of most of their grandkids. And then you get them at the end of the day, and all of that is gone. All of that is gone because fatigue, because your brain, in the case of someone like this, is running the cortex in a brain region called the hippocampus. You're running it on like 85 90% of the neurons you normally have. And the networks are weakened and it's taking more energy to retrieve information. And you got more energy earlier in the day. And when you get tired, your cognitive status goes down the tubes. And this is just a totally documented sort of clinical phenomenon with dementia patients. As it gets later in the day, what do you know? Brains get tired along with muscles and everything else. And it gets harder to be running on like six cylinders when uh, you know, which should be eight, but two of them have died due to the disease.
1: I wanted to to share something that I thought was really important, which is your your narrative on gut feeling and decision making and uh, VM prefrontal cortex damage.
0: Yeah. Okay. So, as you sort of already alluded to, uh, frontal cortex has this executive function and a sub area of it apologies for the jargon called the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex. That's basically when the prefrontal cortex makes an executive decision, the information exits through this area and that's what sends out the command for your muscles to do whatever. And as you noted before, what the frontal cortex is also doing is listening to all those more emotional, messy disinhibited parts of the brain shouting in as to what they think is the smart thing to do at that point. All of that emotional limbic information is coming in by way of another portal in the frontal cortex. This one is called the ventromedial prefrontal cortex. Okay, so dorsolateral is for the hyper cerebral Mr. Spock Vulcan decision making <laughs> sort of stuff. And ventromedial is all the emotional stuff coming in there. So what everyone is accustomed to is the idea that if you get somebody who gets the Mr. Spock part of the brain damage, this dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, obviously that's going to be a disaster because you have somebody then who can't inhibit their emotional behaviors. And this is what you see damage there is associated with people who are, sexually inappropriate who are hyper aggressive who are blasphemous from the standards of their culture or whatever all of their emotional stuff has been disinhibited by the sensible part of their frontal cortex has been damaged so you come away with a sense of whoa you really do want to have a dorsal lateral prefrontal cortex working properly but then you take the flip side and say so what happens in people with the ventromedial prefrontal cortex that's damaged And what you then have is a frontal cortex that doesn't get any gut feelings. It doesn't get any intuitions. It doesn't get any input, not running a thought experiment, but running a feeling experiment. Because a lot of what you're doing when you're making decisions is asking your emotional parts of the brain to simulate, okay, so how am I going to feel if I do this and this is what happens? How am I going to... And if you get damaged there, you're not getting any of that. And you get someone who has a whole lot of trouble making a decision because they get no gut intuitions about what the right answer is. More importantly, you get someone who makes the most unbelievably heartless, unemotional, affectless decisions possible. And what does that look like? You get any person out there and you give them all these sort of like utilitarian moral decision making sort of things okay would it be okay to kill one one sibling in order to save three strangers and there's a whole hierarchy of who counts more as us than others you get damaged in this part of the brain and you throw your mother under the train as readily as you would throw hitler under the train because my mother no longer has an emotional resonance coming into your frontal. You You get totally cold, affectless, purely pathologically pragmatic decision-making. So what you get from that is just when people are about to decide, oh, damn, if only we were purely rational creatures, what a wonderful world this would be. No, a lot of the time, the best, most wonderful, compassionate, heroic, stupid, like, how could anyone get themselves to do something that amazing in a circumstance like that? Yet we do it because some of the time our greatest moments are our irrational ones. We need our irrational inputs into our decision-making, our emotional inputs as readily as we need our thinking and cognitive ones.
1: It reminded me of when you mentioned throwing your, your mother under the bus, the the philosophical trolley problem. And you mentioned Cohen and Green's two trolley problem. I'd love if you'd share this.
0: It's this, you know, classic problem in philosophy. Okay, so there's a trolley, it's broken loose from its brakes It's hurtling down the tracks out of control, it's going to hit and kill five people. And the basic scenario is, is it okay to push one person onto the track? who's going to be killed by the trolley, but is going to gum it up in the process and stop it. Is it okay to sacrifice one innocent person to save five? Classic utilitarian. And what fascinates philosophers is, you know, that people have their certain decisions. What fascinates psychologists is you get totally different decisions from people depending on subtle things with wording, depending on subtle things like, Is it okay to push this person onto the track? Oh my God, no, only 25% of people would be willing to do that to save five people from death. Is it okay to press a button that would open a chute that would dump this person onto the track? 75% of people say, sure, of course I would sacrifice one in order to save five. Wait a second, in both cases, you're choosing between one and five and in one scenario, Don't sacrifice one and the other. Yeah, go and do it. They're absolutely the same formally. What's the difference? And it turns out people have much more of an aversion to doing that if you're going to push the person with their own hands. If you're going to look at their face beforehand, this is where all that irrational stuff is coming in. And this is where, as you noted before, now instead of what's going on one second before or 30 seconds worth of smells before, what's going on in your brain hours to days before, Um, your brain's being exposed to hormones and the levels of your various hormones. And this is where it brings in this hormone oxytocin, which everybody loves oxytocin. (laughs) If only we could dump oxytocin in the water supply, everyone would like join nudist colonies and just sing folk songs and there'd be no war because oxytocin promotes mother-infant bonding and monogamous pair bonding and trust and generosity, all of this stuff, oh, oxytocin is uniformly pro-social. But then you look at it more closely, and that's not how it works at all. And this was this brilliant elaboration on the runaway tro- trolley problem. It was done in the Netherlands a few years ago. A researcher named Karsten did a wonderful study where he gave, you know, students, Dutch college students, Psych 101 volunteers, he gave them the runaway trolley problem and there was an elaboration. They were asked, is it okay to push this person to their death in order to save five other people? And what was done was that person was given a name. And a third of the time, they were given some good old boy Dutch name like Dirk or Peter or something. And the rest of the time, they were given one of the two names of groups that consistently have negative connotations in Holland german names oh yeah that's right world war ii that was a bummer or muslim names so now you got somebody you contemplating am i going to push dirk onto the track how about pushing Otto onto the track how about ahmed or whatever and what they show is you give people oxytocin and they're much more likely to save the life of dirk or peter and they're much more likely to push wolfgang or Mohammed Onto the tracks there, does oxytocin make you nicer? No. Oxytocin makes humans nicer to people who count as an us. And it makes you crappier and more preemptively aggressive and more likely to cheat in an economic game against people who you classify as a them. Oxytocin wouldn't make the world nicer. All it does is take the us-them fault lines in our brains and make them even more exaggerated. Which is a hell of a lot more subtle of an endocrine effect than, oh, this is a hormone that makes mammals prosocial. Our brains are much more complicated than
1: that. I was thinking of it like uh, oxytocin makes you do do the in the COVID word the elbow bump, but it's actually more likely to give you an elbow to somebody who's on the other team. But um, yes, <laughs> moving on to um, uh, testosterone, and and behind me is one of your brilliant books, The Trouble with Testosterone. But you uh, you focus in on it with, with particular um, emphasis on behaviour in behave.
0: Basically, sort of testosterone in some ways is the evil twin of oxytocin oxytocin, it's gotten away with this wonderful unearned reputation as being uniformly pro-social. Nah, look closely. It's messier than that. It's not such a beautiful hormone across the board. Testosterone, on the other hand, has this across-the-board horrible reputation. Why are males of like every culture and every species out there so uniformly pains in the rear? Testosterone, because testosterone causes aggression. And it turns out, when you look closely, testosterone doesn't cause oppression. Here would be like a classic sort of behavioral study showing what testosterone actually does. You take five male rhesus monkeys, you stick them together in a group, and they form a dominance hierarchy one through five. Number one dominates two through five. Number two dominates three through, three through five. They have this linear hierarchy. Now take number three in the hierarchy and shoot him up with testosterone. Like give him so much testosterone that he's like growing extra testicles or who knows, <laughs> massive amounts of testosterone. So you ask this question, is he going to be involved in more fights now? And the answer is yes, absolutely. Number three is going to be in more fights. So now you say, aha. Is number three now going to be challenging and trouncing numbers two and number one? Is number three going to be rising up in the hierarchy? Absolutely not. Number three doesn't go anywhere near number two and one. What happens is number three becomes a total nightmare to poor number fours and fives. Number three just rains terror down on them. Testosterone does not cause aggression. Testosterone amplifies whatever patterns of social aggression are there already so if we have trouble with sort of male aggression it's because socialization all testosterone is doing is amplifying whatever the socialization is putting in there what's even more remarkable is some totally subtle studies okay somebody's threatening your status and you're a male baboon. how are you going to respond to this threat? You're going to try to slash the guys face open with your canines. If you're a human, challenges to status can come in a lot of different forms. And retaining status could take a lot of different forms as well. And in a particular setting, the way you can attain status as a human is by seeing, being seen as the most charitable or the most wonderful, or the most laudatory, or the most we could get status in all sorts of interesting ways. And there are economic games where you gain status by being generous. And remarkably, you give people testosterone without them knowing it. They don't become aggressive jerks then. They become more generous in their gameplay. Testosterone doesn't make us aggressive. Testosterone amplifies whatever pre-existing tendencies towards aggression there are. And most of all, testosterone makes us do whatever it requires to have more status. In other words, if you took a whole bunch of Buddhist monks and you shot them up with testosterone, they would run amok seeing who could do the most random acts of kindness. The problem isn't testosterone. The problem is that we hand out so much prestige for aggression. That's where the
1: problem comes from. I just have that image in my head, man. <laughs> Going around, take that. There's some gum. Here's some money for you. A <laughs> mother- <laughs> here's, here's some cookies. goddammit. damn it. Uh, um, so, uh, moving on to dopamine because um, I, I lecture uh, also, and it's one of the things I try and tell the kids about, uh, students about is. The magic of maybe and the dangers of social media and how it's designed to trigger your dopamine
0: i live near the heart of silicon valley at stanford university so surrounded by the universe of these masters of the universes who are taking over our every facet of privacy and social life and they're brilliant at understanding basic neurochemistry Um, And again, some wonderful revisionism here, Uh, oxytocin, more complicated than people used to think, testosterone, more complicated, dopamine, it's a neurotransmitter, it's a chemical messenger in the brain. And what everybody from like nursing from their mother first learned is dopamine is about reward. It's about pleasure. Cocaine releases dopamine. It's about pleasure. But then people figured out it's really not about pleasure. It's about the anticipation of pleasure. Once you learn, aha, when the little light goes on, that means if I press the lever 10 times, I'm gonna get a reward. When do you secrete dopamine? Not when you get the reward, you secrete it when the little light goes on. That's your brain sitting there saying, yeah, I know all about this. I know when the light comes on. I hit the lever, I'm gonna get a reward. That's gonna be fabulous. I'm on top of this. It's about the anticipation. The reward is an afterthought. The anticipation to get it is what's really driving. More importantly, if you block that rise in dopamine, you don't press mean is what gives you the fuel to go out and do the work to get that reward, the goal-directed behavior. But then the thing that's most amazing of all is that this is what you see in circumstances where you do the work. You get the reward. You do the work. You get the reward. 100% relationship. Now switch things to you do the work and you only get the reward about 50% of the time. And what happens to dopamine? It goes through the roof like crazy, like levels you never see otherwise. What is this? You've just inserted the word you loaded before into your brain chemistry. The word maybe, because you're teetering on that fulcrum there of, oh, yeah, I'm on top of this. I know how to lever press, but I'm such a screw up and I'm sure I'm going to mess up today. But now nah, I know what the red signal means. Boy, come on. You no, know, I'm going to mess up. And you teeter back and forth and you press the lever over and over and over again. And unpredictable intermittent reinforcement is the thing that just milks appetitive behavior out of us like crazy. This is something that the neuroscientists who invented Monte Carlo in Las Vegas (laughs) figured out way back when. And this is something that Silicon Valley sure understands in patterns of predictability and reward in these systems. Uh, We are not pleasured by the pursuit of happiness. We are pleasured by the happiness of pursuing something we're maybe we're gonna get it, maybe not. Uh, maybe, 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 and you could just taste it. So let's just press that lever another 100,000 times, and it's going to be terrific.
1: One of the fears of this period of time we're in, in this pandemic, and what's coming next, I don't think we've felt the pain of it yet, um, is that chronic stress depletes dopamine, and therefore depletes that magic of maybe or the carrot of of desire and uh enthusiasm
0: absolutely to get all technical um by adversity, by stress by whatever like that you have somebody who suffers from anhedonia psychiatry jargon hedonia and pursuit of pleasure anhedonia inability to feel pleasure this is the old version feel pleasure when you're depleted of dopamine you can't feel the anticipation of pleasure you can't feel the motivation yet and what if we just define this is the backbone of what clinical depression is like and what is clear is like the world is going to be suffering for years to come with tidal waves of anxiety disorders and depressive disorders because of what this pandemic has been. If the main thing you have concluded from this pandemic is every single second you have to be vigilant and wash your hands and wash them again and close the windows and make sure nobody has exhaled in your vicinity, you're going to wind up with an anxiety disorder. And if what you conclude from this is this invisible thing is everywhere and there's nothing I can do about it, you're going to wind up with a major depressive disorder. Or if you're really complicated enough, you're going to wind up with both and really have your life derailed by it. It's going to be a disaster. There's to come the psychiatric implications of everything that's going wrong now on this planet because of this virus.
1: It, it reminds me, uh, Robert, of um, PTSD and how the when, when you experience... Uh, uh, Traumatic events, your amygdala gets larger, but also it then triggers us to maybe take a step back and look at. We looked at what happens milliseconds before, what happens moments before, days before, weeks before. But what happens when you're a fetus, for example, if your mother is stressful during the pregnancy?
0: We are not our genes. Our genes are important, and the genes you inherited are important. They influence all sorts of aspects of function, but genes. Don't decide anything. You want a metaphor saying the genes decide like what happens with your behavior is like saying a cake recipe decides when you make the cake. All genes are is a recipe, the readout for stuff. What regulates genes environment? And it turns out a whole type of gene regulation can involve environments turning some genes on for the rest of your life or turning other genes off in certain parts of your body turning them off for the rest of your life. Jargony, very flashy, sexy feel these days, epigenetic changes in the brain. And it turns out your fetal environment is nine months of epigenetic experiences shaping what your brain and body are going to be like forever after. And one of the really striking ones is what you just brought up. Go out and stupidly pick the wrong womb to spend nine months in. Pick the womb of a mother who is poor or refugee or homeless or who knows what who's secreting tons of stress hormones and as a result of those stress hormones there's an epigenetic change in your fetal brain so that your amygdala is going to be bigger as an adult and you're going to have more of a tendency towards anxiety and depression and you're going to have more problems with regulating your emotional behaviors and such in other words God. wow wow what a rotten human, the way they can't control their behavior in the face of temptation. Why are they awful like that? Because it's something that happens to them when they were second trimester fetus. Yeah, don't tell me about free will and we are the captains of our fates. When everything from like a smell 30 seconds ago to what was going on with your fetal and all we do afterward happened time is try to come up with a rationalization in our frontal cortexes for why, in fact, that was a very rational thing that I did just now.
1: One more thing. So that's the physical environment in which we live as in the womb. And then I thought it was really useful because I'm here in Dublin and we us Irish, got out of Ireland all over the world and we brought a lot of tribalism and in lots of southern states in the states, for example, Honor was very important, but honor drove aggression and it drove tribalism and it drove horrific acts of violence. And I'd love if you shared this because those echoes of the past are still with us today.
0: Yeah, in remarkable ways. Um, Say, as you noted, in the United States, there's a a long standing uh, sort of regional differences in that the southern parts of the United States, the American South, Not that, but has the highest rates of violence in the United States and the lowest educational levels, shortest life expectancies, the lowest rates of believing in evolution, the highest rates of voting for men running for president in a few weeks you are going to take us back to the dark ages, but I digress here. In any case, so the American South has very high rates of violence. And what's puzzling is the pattern of violence. The elevated rates of murder in the American South are due to white males who are rural. These are not people going and holding up liquor stores in town. You do not see higher rates of murder in a southern city than in the United States. What they're about are crimes of passion and crimes of honor. You're at a family picnic and some cousin you decide is coming on to your girlfriend, so you pull out a gun and you shoot the guy. This is what the elevated rates of aggression were about in the South. And the term that's given is a Southern culture of honor. And what is really fascinating, sort of, a bit of historicism is the northern parts of the United States, the original colonies of New England, were settled by Puritans, um, who were mostly from the South of England. The Middle Atlantic were settled by mercantile Quakers. The South, was settled by pastoralists, crazy-ass Scottish Highlanders, and their <laughs> herds, and Irish, and stuff, and they brought cultures of honor to the American South. And the remarkable thing is, you sit around, and in modern-day 21st century, like American South, you see patterns of that that are attributable to Were your ancestors pastoralists in the Scottish Highlands 500 years ago, or were they shopkeepers in London? And there's residues of that, which is remarkable. Another finding is um, the level of infectious disease load that a society had 400 years ago is a predictor of levels of hostility to outsiders now. 400 years ago, if they were dealing with all sorts of infectious stuff, I'm going to silence the dog shortly. 400 (laughs) years ago, if you were in a culture that was dealing with constant waves of infection, you would generate the sort of culture that was hostile to outsiders because who knows what pathogens they're bringing in. And 400 years later, your descendants are more likely to chance to be more hostile to outsiders than is the average. Wow. Yeah, from one second before the centuries before we are just being sculpted by all the subterranean stuff that we have no damn control over.
1: It's amazing. Uh, and then, you know, add in what we talked about with this pandemic and throw marinate us and all those cocktail of neurochemicals and, you know, tribalism, polarization, etc. We won't go down that rabbit hole man. I, I wanted to, to finish on the positive, the positives because One of the reasons I do this show is because of people like you who bring brilliant knowledge to the world in order to shape the brains of the people who will make that world. And I think, you know, you you talked about the whole idea that new knowledge creates new neurons, creates new connections, creates a new lens and through which you see the world and you experience it. And that's how we change things. And you finish, you said when you did the research for this book, and and I'm going to share something with you, man, I'm going to share my screen. And I'm going to read out to those who are listening to the show what it says, because it's a comment by somebody on one of your lectures. And by the way, for everybody watching or listening, Robert's lectures are available online, and they are brilliant covered in wit and humility that I talked about uh, as, as this, but I'm going to share this because man, you would never look at this, <laughs> but I'm going to share it. So I don't know if you can see my screen. So so what it says here is this beautiful human being must have consumed an unimaginable number of literature, published papers, well thought premises, lectures and conversations. I'm in awe of such a person who dedicates their lives to accomplishments of this magnitude. And they do it for the sake of others as much as for themselves. I believe there's no amount of any currency that could make him do this any better. I just thought I'd share that with you, man, because I think that's just sums it up. And you know, I want to, to say that to you, because I know you'd never look at that
0: that that's, that's very nice. And you've read that. I, I detect from the grammatical structure, though, I'm fairly sure that was written by my mother. So <laughs> We should we should take that in that context. though.
1: So. Okay, man, that's that humility I talked about, but I'm sharing that to show the difference you make in the world, but also that by bringing new information, we can change it. But you studied all this information, you studied all this horrific massacres, like the Mihai massacre, Pearl Harbor, World War One. But you also studied how everything can change, including environments, you mentioned the Swedes, I'd love if you'd share this as our final message to our audience today.
0: Well, I mean, one of the themes that comes through over and over is, wow, all that subterranean biology influencing us all the time, but that amid that, more of that stuff is changeable than people ever used to think. The adult brain can make new neurons in all sorts of interesting circumstances. All sorts of aspects of, you know, behavioral patterns can be changed. Those epigenetic changes that can occur in fetal life, do nothing about it. You got them forever. But they could be reversed with the right sort of therapeutic interventions. And what you see is very little of our biology is set in stone. And as a consequence of that, very little of our behavior is set in stone either. And where you get some of the best examples of that is looking at just extraordinary examples of change. You know, cultural change. The, the Swedes in like the 18th century were the most like crazy ass violent people you could imagine. And then around 1815 something happened and they became the Swedes. Like they became the modern Swedes and like cultures change. And people can change and it can take, decades. there, The the hymn Amazing Grace was written by this this British theologian, John Newton, um, who in his old age in England in the early 19th century was a central architect of the abolition of slavery in the British Empire. And as a young man, John Newton was the captain of a slave ship. And when he retired from slaving and went to divinity school, school. Did he have a revelation at that point? No, he grew wealthy by investing in the slave trade. And 35 years after he stopped being involved in it, something changed in him, something changed that he celebrated writing this hymn, Amazing Grace, and he became the leading abolitionist in England. So you can get change on that sort of scale or change this wonderfully moving example, this man, one of the pilots who led one of the attacks on Pearl Harbor, Japanese bomber pilot, um, 50 years to the day after the attack on Pearl Harbor, there was a ceremony in Honolulu with some of the the aged American survivors of the attack and a 50th anniversary, all of that. And he, this elderly man broke out through the crowd and in broken English, he apologized to those men for what he had done 50 years later. And he and some of them became close friends for the rest of their lives. Wow, 50 years totally transformed. But what you see is it doesn't necessarily take 50 years. It can happen in days. During World War I, the Christmas truce, soldiers in the trenches there put down their arms. And over the course of a few hours, completely changed who was an us and who was a them. And them were no longer the Hun or the Brits. Them were anybody who was not in the trenches here with us on both sides of this hellhole. And them was any damn officer who would, like, go get us killed for their glory. And they just did that in hours where they had these truces that went on for days until officers had to show up and threaten to shoot them if they didn't go back to conducting World War I. But what's most amazing is sometimes it doesn't even take hours or days and the example you bring up, the My Lai Massacre, which was like in some ways the most horrifically documented moment of the American version of the Vietnam War. Um, this was 52 years ago. An American brigade went into a South Vietnamese village filled with nothing but civilians, children and elderly people. And they went in and they killed between 300 and 5, 350 and 500 civilians there they gang raped girls before killing them they mutilated bodies they shot all the livestock they poisoned the wells they burned down the fields and this was unbelievably nightmarish and like the worst documented atrocity by american troops during the vietnam war and with absolute certainty that it was not the only time something like that happened so you look at it and you say oh my God, how would that have happened? All of that, and somewhere in there, you also stumble upon the fact that there was a man, a soldier who stopped the Nielay massacre. A man who did. A man named Hugh Thompson, and there were all sorts of interesting things about. His past, his upbringing, his military status that made it likely that he was the one who was going to step out from this crowd. Hugh Thompson was piloting a helicopter gunship. He'd gotten word that there was fighting in this village of My Lai. And, oh, of course, it seemed that American troops were there protecting villagers from a Viet Cong attack. And he flew over there and he landed and got out and saw American soldiers bayoneting elderly women and shooting babies and things like that. And he went to the commanding officer there and said, what the hell are you doing? And the officer basically told him to screw off and mind his own business. And at that point, there was sort of the last surviving villagers huddled at one end of the village and a bunch of American soldiers coming towards them clearly intending on killing them And Hugh Thompson at that point took his entire lifetime of nationalistic, jingoistic, chauvinistic training as to who was an us and a them and all of his military indoctrination, all of that. And in a fraction of a second, all of that evaporated and he changed us and them categories. He got in his helicopter and he trained his machine guns on the American troops and said, take one more step and I'm going to mow you down. And this man, 10 minutes before, could never have told you that he was going to do that. And when you look at who are the people who saved Holocaust victims and who are the people who stood up against the Ku Klux Klan in the American South and and who are the people who show moments of unbelievable change and unbelievable magnificence like that. And the lust that comes through over and over from the biology of them is they don't have parts of the brain that none of us do. They didn't invent some new fancy neurotransmitter that none of us have. They uniformly have fairly conventional upbringings. There's no obvious predict. They're just like the rest of us. And What we see from sort of understanding the the biology of where change like that can come from is people like that are not putting their pants on two legs at a time. They're just like the rest of us. We are all capable in moments like that of doing something that shows a degree of biological plasticity that leaves us open mouthed at how we could pull off a moment like that when we could not even have predicted it. Um, so you know, amid all of this, oh my God, all of this like depressing biology here, um, there's a lot of good news here. We could change, and it's very likely that virtually any of us could do that in some extraordinary circumstance and do something wonderful.
1: That's a beautiful way to finish, man, and you know what what you do for people like me reading this book is you give us empathy and you make us suspend judgment. So when you go to judge someone particularly harshly, you go wait a second, I have no idea what's going on. I have no idea. And I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt. So for that, and from our listenership and our viewership, I want to thank you so much. And particularly because I know you're in the midst of a book, I know it's 20 past midnight over in in California. So I want to thank you for that. Robert, is there a parting message you'd like to give? I mean, we're We we fast forwarded this interview because we were going to do it post election. It's we're in a period of chaos in humanity. Is there a parting message of of hope that you want to give to everyone out there?
0: Well, it strikes me when people sit there and they study about all of this stuff. um, Most people have a moment of like total existential panic because they say, "Oh my God, there's much less free will than I thought there was," or even they'll arrive at Oh my God! There's no free will at all, and ninety-nine percent of people see that as absolutely terrifying. Because what's our purpose? And we're just going to have murderers running around because nobody can help be held responsible. Or worse, I'm not going to be able to be praised for any of the good things that I did because it's not really my doing. And what's the purpose in life? And there's all these ways in which a picture of accepting that we are nothing more or less than our biology is totally demoralizing and leads to existential despair. When you really, really think about it, what it does instead is lead to two fantastic things. If you really, truly believe we are nothing more than whatever wonderful or crappy biological luck the millennia have brought to one second before in our brains there's no justification for ever feeling as if you are entitled to anything more than any other person and there's never any justification for hating anyone because if you're going to hate someone that makes as little sense as hating a tornado for what it did to your farmhouse and if people really really could think that way those are the only conclusions you could reach and it sure as hell hard to do that because I don't succeed at that very often. But in principle, that's where all of us should arrive.
1: Beautiful, beautiful man. Author of "Behave: Bio- The Biology of Humans at Our Best and at, at Our Worst." One of the si- best scientific writers of our time, Robert Sapolsky. It's an absolute honor. Thank you so much for your time.
0: This was this was a fun interview. You, you, hit on all the right things.
1: (laughs) Pleasure. Absolute pleasure.